Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with the delightful Dr. Barry Tan. He has a PhD in biochemistry, and he is a vitamin E expert with a focus on lipid-soluble nutrients that impact chronic disease. Today, we dove deep into vitamin E, how it has plays a role in antioxidant protection of lipids and fats, what are tocotrienols, his discovery of anato, the benefits of delta and gamma tocotrienols, why we can't get sufficient tocotrienols in our diets and why supplementation is so beneficial, the impact of tocotrienols in cholesterol and metabolic health, bone health, and also cancer, along with recommendations and a brief discussion about GG. I hope you will love this podcast as much as I do. It has certainly changed my entire perspective on metabolic and bone health needs relevant to this particular variation of vitamin E. Dr. Tan, it's such a pleasure to connect with you today. Thank you for carving time out of your busy schedule. Wow. I'm glad to be on your show. And hopefully this will be a blessing to all the people following you and listening to you. So I've been excited to talk about this lesser known type of vitamin E. I was actually saying before we started recording that as I was doing research for this podcast, I started to realize that this is applicable to nearly every person that is listening to this podcast. But how did your background, now you're trained as a biochemist and a chemist, how did your background prepare you for the discovery of Anato, which is, you know, how you kind of came into this vitamin E expert space? I think I got into that broadly because of my interest in keeping fat stable. And so it's antioxidant. And on this, I know you didn't specifically ask this, but I like to give this an illustration and then the audience will quickly grasp this. Many people talk about antioxidant that they should be taking like that. And so it seems like there's a lot of noise in the background, but I think I can help the audience to skim away the grass so that you can clearly see what stands out. The antioxidant I care about most would be the, the thing that protect the lipids and the fat. It is true, you, we need to protect the protein, uh, the uh, sugar and the nucleic acid, anything oxidized like that is no good. And at the same time, oxidation just means too much oxygen. We need oxygen to live. But of all the protein, the fat, the nucleic acid and the sugar, the one that is easiest to oxidize would be the lipid. If you just put a stick of butter out on a summer day, you'll know exactly what I mean an hour or two later, or you drive past a roadkill, that smell, that stench would be clearly that of fat. Now, having said that, now you go back. So that means fat is the easiest thing to get oxidized. In each human body, we have about 38 trillion cells. There's a big number. So it's about 5,000 times the population of the earth. And each cell has a cell membrane and lining all the cell membrane are fat. So it's hard to imagine, you know, less than half the fat in our body is where you hold onto your love handle 
or our butt, for example. I know that sounds crude, but more than half of our fat is actually in the cell wall throughout our entire body. And that is what I'm concerned about most because the cell is a gated community. In other words, what goes in and what goes out is very important. If that is compromised, then a lot of bad things happen to us like that. And that cell wall is actually fat. So, which is why you would ask your audience and I would do the same to take high amount of omega-3. Everybody knows it's good. And eventually the omega-3 would land into the cell wall to make the cell wall more pliable. And, and omega-3 is very unstable. So there, and of all the antioxidant out there, a vitamin E type of antioxidant perfectly fit into the cell wall because it looked like a sperm or a tadpole where the hydroxyl group sticks out in the water and inside the water, the tail would be saturated like a vitamin E here. The black and white are the very lipid soluble. It sticks into the cell membrane where the fat is. And then if I go the other side, see the oxygen group, that's an antioxidant. Now, there are many good antioxidants. I'm sure your audience know this, like lycopene, like resveratrol, like green tea extract, but they have two heads or three or four heads. So they can't have a tail that sticks into the lipid. They're all sticking out, so it doesn't really fit. Every time I gave this example, I know it's very simplistic. It is actually true. It was discovered by a professor in Austria in the 1980s. He was just curious what protects the cell wall, and he found that nearly more than 90% of the antioxidant in the cell wall, they are either a tocopherol or a tocotrienol. And if they're not that, it would be CoQ10. And CoQ10, by the way, in the back, you see, I have a huge molecule. They see how to get much longer. Oxidation is, antioxidant is right over there like that. That our body makes. So it's made actually in situ in the cell and it just stay there, which is why a huge molecule like that, so lipid soluble. If you take exogenous supplemental CoQ10, which we should as we go older and, and everybody said about how necessary it is to be bioavailable. The reason they do that is because this molecule is like an albatross. It's very difficult to absorb in the body. And that's why we want to encourage our body to make this because then it's made in place. You know, just like we become elderly, you know, we, I'm not saying someday I would be, become elderly to have what they call a room or a home in place. So to encourage the CoQ10 to be made in place, it's beautiful, but still we don't have enough. So we supplement and a fraction of them go in. The reason the fraction of them go in is because of the long, long tail. And the toco know, is approximately about two and a half, three times shorter. So sorry, it took him too long to explain that. But I think that's a very important understanding of antioxidant and why I care about the kind of antioxidant that would protect fat and lipid from easily going bad, going rancid. So it's such an important point, and you're bringing me back to my organic chemistry days as I'm looking at those very long, one on the table behind you, one that you were carrying a few minutes ago. And probably equally important is understanding that the cellular membrane, this phospholipid bilayer, uh -huh. that this is what kind of holds the 
you know, our mitochondria, other organelles within the cell. We know that our mitochondria, as we are getting older, become dysfunctional. And Mm -hmm. so these are really important. And listeners understand that dysfunctional mitochondria occur with nearly all chronic disease states. And I, I think a lot of the connecting the dots for you is talking about the role of vitamin E and its impact on some of these chronic health issues that so many, not just Americans, many westernized countries are now dealing with. Correct. And so there are different types of vitamin E. I think this was an important distinction as I was, you know, getting prepped for this interview was having people understand that there are different types of vitamin E. You're speaking specifically toward the tocotrienols, but there are other types of vitamin E as well that do not penetrate that cell layer the same way. Yes. And there are eight of them, four tocopherols and four tocotrienols. So simplistically, the best known vitamin E is alpha tocopherol on the tocopherol side. And that was why it was called vitamin E to begin with. And it is very interesting about the misstep and the sidestep. This vitamin E was discovered because, and I don't know if many, I know many of your listeners are women and this alpha tocopherol was discovered as a vitamin E because it helped the fetus to go to full term. That is actually what the, but most people understand vitamin E as an antioxidant. They're both correct, but the original vitamin E is to bring the fetus to full term, which is why you'll find alpha tocopherol in a prenatal, for example, like that. So then over time, people had studied again, if you have a cell that look like this shape, like my a mouse here, like that, and then when you have tocopherol, the tocopherol spin around that a kidney bean, so to speak, like that, like this relative speed. Why? And then a tocotrieno also does the same, except it spin 50 times faster. So why is the reason that it spin 50 times faster? Here is an example. If this tail were to be a tocopherol, it would be about uh, 20 to 30% longer. If I rotate it, you see that there's a double bond here, a tocotriene, a triene, three double bond. A tocopherol doesn't have that, so it's longer. So all that to say, a tocopherol inserts itself deeper into the membrane, so therefore anchors deeply and move around slower. And tocotrienol anchors less deeply, perfectly molecularly less deeply, and spin around much faster. So I simplify this for people to understand a tocopherol and tocotrienol, they do the same thing. A tocopherol would be more like a local policeman to catch the bad guy. And a tocotrienol would be like a state trooper. You're able to scan a much broader space. And for that reason alone, the tocotrienol is able to cover a much largest space to protect oxidation. It, it is consistently shown, and this is 1997 in UC Berkeley when the professor last did this work. So. And so my understanding is that you actually found this tocotrienol in a plant, so in a natto, when you were in South America, and you identified that it was not bound to anything else that actually stained your hand. So I think this is really interesting. When I was diving into your background and your research, discovering anato was a type of tocotrienol, plant-based. And here would be a younger me with a lot more hair. So you can see that. (laughs) I discovered this when I was uh, in South America, in Peru. So I show you some pictures. 
And this is a plant. It is really a very beautiful looking plant. This is a picture of a natto. We use it for coloring cheeses like that. If you see, if have I have scratched this, I know this is a picture, it would stain. So that is the carotene color like that. And if you look at this fruit carefully, uh, there's something very unusual about it. If you think of a fruit that you like, it would be the texture, the tartness, and the sweetness like that. And that part that we eat is called the miso cup. There is no miso cup. There's lots of seeds. And where the miso cup is just air when you open it. So therefore, the plant uses to conserve the making of the miso cup, the fleshy part, and make the color. And the color is to deceive the birds of the air and the Amazonian tree frog, thinking it's the fruit swallow it, and then they'll uh, spit out the seeds to procreate. That, that's it. That will be only if you smell it. If any of your audience is somewhere near a botanical garden, you ask the botanist, where can I find a lipstick plant? So when the British discovered this, I still haven't figured out where it is. I think the original coloration of the lipstick of women being red come from the British called it the lipstick plant like that. And today, Avida, uh, that have they make many wonderful natural products. They use this anato color and they specifically buy our toko trino to protect the lipstick from discoloration. So this is one. And this is an example of an Amazonian tree frog. The frog is about the size of a dime. And the seed is about the size of grape seed, so it's very tiny. And this is to show you that this plant is truly from the Amazonia, where the Amazonian tree frog was first discovered. So, and here you can see it's used since time memorial. The Inca Indians uh, used it to color their markings in their society. And the young Inca boys uh, put it on his head. You can see on the bottom, there are natto seeds there. And then they put it on his head uh, because there are certain components in there that is an insect repellent. Anyway, I describe all of this in my book here. You can download free. Later on, you can uh, find out from here. It's a label of love. I wrote this for people. No charge. You can download it. So I went to South America because there was a famous ophthalmologist, uh, Professor Johanna Seden in Harvard, and she said that in the back of the retina of the eye is lined with lutein and zeaxanthin so that it filter the blue light. So when the blue lights come, and then they'll be able to protect the retina while we see the image. So, I mean, today everybody knows to take lutein and zeaxanthin for macular degeneration. Now I'm talking about 1994. It's quite some time earlier. So what when I did I did find the giant marigold. I saw that and I described it in this book. I'll show it quickly. Sorry, I'm taking my time. So see, this is a picture. You can see me. I did yes. find the giant marigold plant, but fate has it literally 20, 30 feet away from me. I saw the anato plant. And then that color is also a carotene. But unlike every other carotene that I'm familiar with and you are familiar with, for example, beta carotene. You can touch a cut carrot. It's very difficult to stain your beta carotene in your hand or tomato, which is lycopene like that. Or if you live in New England, if you uh, cook a lobster from yucky green to suddenly the uh, flamboyant uh, astaxanthin color, they are proteinated and protected. Not so with that of the anato. So I surmise that there must be a very powerful antioxidant to protect it, but it was just a hypothesis. I was expecting that it would be a polyphenol, but it was not a polyphenol. So surprisingly, 
It was a vitamin E molecule. And more surprisingly, it doesn't contain tocopherol. And most surprisingly, it only contained the two most active tocotrienol. I'm really blessed. I did not even go to South America to look for this plant. So for the last 25 years, and for better or for worse, my life had been arrested to focus on study days. And I'm thrilled that, you know, I'm sharing this more of passion and enthusiasm because of this benefit to people. And it was entirely not what I went to South America for. So I was given this on a plate. I owe it to let people know what it's supposed to do. You know, when they are, and I stumble on one in 50 million, it's like a lottery ticket. They, people sometimes get bitten by mosquitoes, snake this and that to go to Amazon. I wasn't, I just happened to see a tree 20, 30 feet away from me. So, I mean, that would be a medicine man as simple as it gets, you know, not deep in the jungle, not like that. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorbro.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. 
product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. I think it was serendipitous that you were there and you were curious and you were paying attention. And my understanding that the two types of tocotrienols, it's the delta and gamma that are part of the annatto plant and are attributable to most of the benefits. Yeah. Of the eight vitamin E, and I already mentioned the alpha tocopherol is the best known. And then of the eight, only two stands out to be the most potent. This is before my discovery. And they are delta and gamma tocotrienol. So if you were to run an analysis, you would have about 90% delta and you probably have 10% gamma like this. Now, when people did studies, if you rank the order, uh, the most potent one is delta and then uh, the half potent one is gamma and then everything else is below, is head and shoulder below that of delta and gamma. And now if you do an analysis of anato, it's 90% delta and 10% gamma. So I immediately called my friend in Wisconsin. He was the father of modern day tocotrienol. And then I, re- I distinctively remember what he said. He said, Barry, if tocotrienol would be, would mitigate human conditions, this anato tocotrienol better do. If not, all our our work and life in doing tocotrienol research will be waste. Then I said, well, in that case, let's start to do some clinical trials and see that that was, that was in uh, 1997, 98, sometime during that, about four years after Johanna Seedon discovered the lutein and zeaxanthin. And, and it's because of that I went to South America. So even that is quite some years ago now, some 25 or more years ago. So. It's really fascinating. And before we get into the benefits of the tocotrienols, without question, one of the questions I've been asked is, can we get this from our diet? And I know the answer to this, but I would love to have you explain why we can't get enough of this in our diets. Yeah. Thank you for asking. This is uh, important, Cynthia, because people ask, you say, can I, if you don't ask them, oh, I could get it and buy anato seeds like this. I did do a study one time Tocotrienol, I discovered all from the three sources, from rice bran, from palm, and from anato. So rice bran would be if you uh, in Thailand or Japan or China, they eat a lot of rice, and you need to eat brown rice to get it because it's in the bran like that. And then palm oil, most Americans don't take a lot of palm oil because of the saturated fat, but many other countries in the world, they do. So, And palm oil has now... I want to make a distinction. Palm and rice contain 25 to 50% tocopherol. And this high amount of tocopherol in would put breaks on the function of tocotrienol. Later, I may get to explain this, but with anato, it's completely free of tocopherol. So that itself should clear the path that nothing is putting breaks on it. So anato is used throughout South America. So if you 
in a country that consume palm oil or rice bran oil, you potentially can get to uh, probably three to five milligram of tocotrienol. If you were to live in South America taking annatto uh, because of a pound tortilla chip and then they put it in many other South American food, perhaps five to 10 milligram a day from your diet. And then if you eat American diet, that is generally, this is all gone. Like, for example, you have to eat a tortilla chip that people put this thing in or cheese. It's not like in a normal food. It's in a processed food of some kind or animal that we eat meat from that consume corn because corn have a small amount, indirectly you can get from the meat like that. Then in a typical American diet, I've seen them still about three to five milligrams, seldom above. In comparison, we consume about 10 to 15 milligram alpha tocopherol from the diet. So then the small amount of tocotrienol probably is subsumed and overcome by the uh, two, three times more tocopherol. And for the better of all our studies, you need about 100 to 200 milligram on the low side of tocotrienol. So therefore, 3 to 5 or 10 milligram are not going to cut it for the dietary concern uh, like that. And of course, furthermore, people supplement the popular vitamin E, which is alpha-tocopherol, something like uh, 200, 400, or 1,000 IU, which approximate to milligram, 200, 400, 1,000. That is huge amount of alpha-tocopherol, so huge that the tocotrienol, even if you take from food or from supplement, you have no prayer for that to be absorbed because the alpha tocopherol, it has a transport protein, so the right to pass it. It immediately absorbs and everything have to wait in a way. So if you want to know what the right of passage is, you know, it's kind of like if you were to go to a, a Oscar party, if you were to be like Nicole Kidman, you don't have to wait in line, you know. <laughs> if you were to be anybody else, you have to wait there all night for a chance to get in. So that's what I mean. Uh, the tocopherol have a right of passage. It goes straight in and tocotrienol goes through by passive diffusion like other fat. So if you take so much tocopherol and everything else on the vitamin E series, they wouldn't have a prayer to go in. So I hope that's useful. No, no, the analogies are, are very, very helpful. And so to reiterate, you need to supplement, you can't get enough in your diet of the right types of tocotrienols. Now, what I found particularly interesting was the benefits of tocotrienols, so much so that I started taking supplementation immediately after reading your book and prepping for this interview, because I think it is that important specifically for metabolic health, inflammation, bone health in particular, which how many women are struggling with bone health because we don't realize that we are really at peak bone and muscle mass in our twenties and thirties. So if you're not ahead of the curve, as you transition into middle age, you can put yourself at risk for developing osteoporosis. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Now we slowly segue into the clinical study side. Just that the audience know that even though I am in business to make this, I want the audience to, to know this. This is a slow train coming from me. It is not, in the, as I told you from the story. And even before I discovered Anato, I was already studying Tocotrieno for some 15 years before that. So it is a very slow train. In the earlier years, 
we were doing a lot of animal studies because we can't be doing clinical study when we don't even know what it does. So in the animal study, consistently, it works in this chronic condition. So you were chronic condition like metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and you mentioned osteopenia. We even have a study now on middle-aged men and women who are obese because I surmise of the huge inflammation burden on these people. No judgment, simply just doing the study to see what benefit to people like that. And then also in the animal study, just before we start doing clinical work, we just thought, wow, initially it was like 90% on chronic condition and 10% on cancer. Now, cancer is also a chronic condition thing with the exception of glioblastoma and hematologic cancer, which is very common in juvenile thing, but just for simplicity. So 90% chronic. 10% cancer. And in the last 10 years, if you look at the, the published work, you can go online to do this, then it'll be like half on chronic condition and 50% on cancer. So I was so troubled. I talked to my director of research, Andrea, she worked for me for many years. I said, and you know, there's so many studies on cancer thing. He said that, but and everybody keep publishing it. So I'm just pent up on it. So we should be doing some clinical trials on cancer. And the reason people are not doing that, Cynthia, is because even if you did, and it's a big C word, it's a horrible C word. If you do this, you're never going to get the FDA approval. Then I say, and it doesn't matter to me. Let's do this and see if it work on people or not. So right now, how about I'll pass it back to you. On the clinical study, like if we've done about 20, 30 different study on chronic condition, including cancer, we cannot do 20, 30. We have done 20 to 30 clinical trials, still some ongoing, but we only choose narrower things. So of all the clinical studies that we have done, I'll name them and then I'll let you decide which you want me to talk about, would be lipidemia, prediabetes, diabetes, fatty liver disease, osteopenia, obesity, and then cancer. And in the cancer area, we specifically study for cancer. We study ovarian cancer, breast cancer, both women, and then uh, men and women, colon cancer and lung cancer. So you can pick whatever cherry you want, and then I'll tell you what we have done on it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I would say all of the above, but I want to be respectful of your time. I think that when I think about metabolic health, I think that is the biggest bucket. And I know from preparing for the interview that NOFLD, this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and insulin resistance and inflammation all play a role with one another. So I, I think we might be able to weave in like the lipids and the insulin resistance all together because they are so interplayed yeah. with one another. They don't exist in a vacuum. Let me be very clear. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Initially, uh, maybe then I start this way. Initially, when we first found in animal, it was to lower lipids in the early 1980s, just at the advent of statin drugs coming for lowering cholesterol. So, and then fortunately, that student who got a PhD in University of Wisconsin, he became uh, the vice president of research and development in Bristol-Myers Squibb. So therefore, he continued to fund the professor on this. Later, they abandoned the TOCO trinol study, not because it didn't work, but because they, as most of the audience know, the water-soluble uh, uh, statin 
that Bristol Myers Group that is still in use today is Provostatin or Provacol. It's not the most active one, but when people have muscle problem, then they'll take the Provacol because it's something rather than nothing. So they abandon the tocotrienol research and then go on the statin thing, but not until all the mechanism, the understanding why lower cholesterol were done. So, and then that was in the early 80s, and I just became an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts then. So I jump on this, I study, and then, so then since 1982 to today, so you can calculate how long I've been on studying on this. So in lipidemia, it would lower the cholesterol probably about 15, 20%, not as dramatic uh, as statin at 30 to 50%, like that, but still it's nothing to sneeze at. But when we first did that, we were uh, pleasantly surprised. Not only a lower cholesterol, but a lower triglyceride. Then I said, wait a minute, triglyceride is particularly important with people with metabolic syndrome. So it's not an overnight thing, Cynthia. I learned as I went along. So when we check carefully, it even lower triglyceride a little bit better and more consistently than cholesterol, more like 20 to 30%. Then I said, wait a minute, people who have metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes, diabetes, this is the problem. So for the audience, a take-home message on metabolic syndrome and insulin is resistant when you, when you mention it is this thing here. I remember the professor in Stanford University, he has since retired and passed away now. He came up with this idea called Syndrome X before it was metabolic syndrome because it was just a cluster of things. The cholesterol is high, the triglyceride high, the sugar is high. So it's actually metabolites in the body. So he didn't know what is kicking in to do what. So he called this a metabolic syndrome, metabolic X because the metabolites there's a un thing, something he needs to unravel. And by the time he was near retirement, he gave a speech in American Diabetes Association. There were so many people wanting to talk with him. I never got to poke my head. You know, I'm a short guy and everybody's going up there. But I know I, so I waited until he left the stage and about to go back and to leave for the plane. Then I caught him. You can see he was not very happy that I stopped him, but I just said that, you know, can you just explain? You know, I asked him a question, I forgot the precise question. He said, look, I don't have time to answer your question, but I give you this one line. And then if you got it, you understand much of my work is published. I never forgot the one thing he said. I'll say exactly what he said, and then I'll simplify. He said that hypertriglyceridemia always precedes hyperglycemia. So that means high triglyceride always precedes high sugar. So therefore, somebody does not get to be diabetic, they have high triglyceride, and high triglyceride is certainly a hallmark of metabolic syndrome. I never forgot it. So to this day, I consistently ask, if you see a doctor, you have your lipid panel, just look at the triglyceride. Your doctor may be reading about the, the cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, the good cholesterol, all good, but also look at the triglyceride to see if you have hypertriglyceridemia. If you do, then you can do things that control that before the triglyceride gets so high and the floodgates would open and then your Sugar will burst. So you don't want that. And when we study people with pre-diabetes, that's a real 
blessing I saw. I saw that the triglyceride is being controlled. And as the triglyceride being controlled, I took courage to know that these pre-diabetic people is not going in the direction of being diabetic. It's going the opposite direction. And then I noticed that as the triglyceride dropped, the sugar dropped slightly. Then I said, wow, that's a very good sign. So we did work on the a pre-diabetes and the diabetes. So, and then later, the reason we segue to do the fatty liver thing was the fatty liver is a very silent disease. About 25, 30% American have that. And it's about 90 million have fatty liver. It is not possible. If this fatty liver ever become uh, NASH, which is the worst case that then they get to be a liver transplant, we will never have enough. Basically, we consume so much fat and carbohydrate to convert to fat such that our liver looks cirrhotic like that of people who consume way too much alcohol and disturb the liver. Can you imagine that? Who would have guessed 30 years ago we can get a liver to be like that of alcoholic destruction, but that this is simply due to fat destruction. This is, I'm still stumped by that. Enough that this description of this disease is so awkward. It's actually called NAFLD, standing for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I mean, it is clear, but it's very awkward, don't you think? They have to explicitly say that it's non-alcohol related. <laughs> and of course, if one were to have fatty liver and furthermore, you continue to consume a lot of alcohol, well, then that is clearly a double whammo. This is not saying more than that, but still this condition is devoid of alcohol. So, and we did this and we have three study, one for three months, six months and 12 months. This is over eight years, Cynthia, like that. The reason we did uh, three times is because the liver is a single largest organ in our body. I was not confident that if I do it three months, that will be satisfactory. So we stopped, we published the three months, and then we got the six months, we got the data, and we published the 12 months. So it is, so after we done that, in this three-month study, we measure stress enzyme like ALT, AST, like that. Many doctors and a PA would do this kind of thing. They don't poke a needle and get a sample. You do that only if you're looking for hepatitis or serious liver damage or liver cancer like that. But otherwise, you do this. So we did that. And then noticed something. And she told me, and then I said, I'm not sure. I'll keep that from you and let you know at the end. He said, and I, I'm not sure it would do that. So I said, let's see what the six-month study. So we committed a six-month study. And this time, we studied the liver enzyme. We studied also C-reactive protein and the sugar and triglyceride. They all drop. In other words, the metabolites is coming back to kilter, you know, to balance. I like it. And then Anne nudged me again. He said, Barry, remember I told you that? It's happening again in the six-month study. So right now, intellectually, I cannot disagree with my director of science. And then I said, and let me do a 12-month study. And if he still does, then I'm going to budge and do something about it. Okay. We did the 12-month study. This time we have ultrasound and CAT scan to make sure that we can actually see the fat egress from the liver. So we did all the earlier thing as well, consistent, still there. So it's sustainable like that. And then the ultrasound saw that the fat egress such that 
uh, they would not have fibrosis of the liver. When you have too much fat and then uh, fat in the liver, and then the, the liver become have scarring tissue and is beginning to have sign of irreversibility. But instead, we saw that fat egress. So I like that. So now I did not have antelomidis. I'm seeing it in the paper, and that is consistently in the three, six, and twelve month study. The patient with fatty liver on tocotrienol, they lost weight. I'm very skittish to mention about weight loss because weight loss program are usually two weeks and four weeks, and the shortest study we had was three months. But they lost weight and they consistently lost about twelve to fifteen pounds. Then I said, wait a minute, if people are overweight. And their fatty liver disease, losing 12 to 15 pounds is nothing to sneeze at. So that means even the body is reacting positively. Come back. So I told Anne, "All right, I'm willing to say that now." <laughs> and this is consistent in the three, six, and 12 months. So I just said, "Wow!" And I don't think it is a weight loss product, as is. It brings your body back into balance and the inflammation reduce and eventually your body adjusts and then your body begins to lose weight. I don't know what that is called, but I think weight loss have other connotation and then I may, it may come across misleading. However, we, I now undoubtedly can say is statistically significant and these uh, fatty liver patient lost weight. So I'm actually thrilled to see this happening. So if you have your audience who have fatty liver condition and like that, how would you guess that when you see your lipid profile, when your doctor does it, just see if your triglyceride is high. And then also see if your sugar is high and moderately high. It doesn't have to be diabetic level sugar. If your triglyceride is a little bit high and your sugar is a little bit high, it's time to take your life back in order to attend to this. And if you are on the overweight list, your BMI is on the overweight side and you would know this, you can go online and find out where your BMI is, then you can take your life back and attend to some of these necessary thing. Of course, I always want to include a moderate amount of exercise with it as well. So I think that's really amazing. And for the benefits of listeners, my whole background's in cardiology. So I looked at a lot of lipid panels and we used to define high triglycerides were 150 and above. And, mm -hmm. you know, looking at your HDL, wanting if you're a female greater than 55, male greater than 45. Mm -hmm. And those were generally the areas that we spent a lot of focus on. I, I think that for the context of the conversation, when you were looking at defining those values for these study participants, was there like a an average or was there a benchmark for their triglycerides need to be higher than X? I mean, were these people who had significant, you know, familial distributions of high triglycerides, or is this just something over 150 and also fasting glucose, maybe over 100, 110 that they were included in these studies? They were exactly, as you said, the, the triglyceride is above 150. And then the fasting glucose is 100, but not more than 110 on fasting because that would be diabetic. So we did that. A long time ago, this is my mouse pad now. It say exactly as you said. This is from Sanofi. And this is probably 10. If I go closer, look at the metabolic thing. 
the very top is a high target, exactly as mm-hmm. what you said, like that. So this have not gone away after 15 years. And right now, there's not much of a medication that can help people with lower triglyceride, you know, and also the HDL is also very low. Like that is very difficult to increase the HDL except for exercise. But surprisingly, uh, people that have metabolic syndrome, the LDL not necessarily increase, but it's usually the triglyceride and then the measurement of the central obesity and then, and then your lipid panel. So those are the few guides that we have. We only study new ones. A blood work of AST, ALT, because that's a common stressor of the liver enzyme. So we do that. And then I was already suspecting that these uh, patients probably are under inflammation. So we have C-reactive protein and interleukin. And then as we become more sophisticated following through the study, we start to look at fibrosis score and then uh, statosis. Statosis is the amount of fat stashed in the liver. And with the 12-month study, the 12-month study was particularly designed in such a way that is not really to convince patient uh, or to convince a health professional necessarily. I set the bar really high because it just cost me so much time and energy and money to do this kind of work. I decided in the 12-month study, Please design the study in such a way, I set the bar really high, so that even hepatologists and endocrinologists will buy in on that. So they are specialists. That's why they did CAT scan. And then they thought, and when they did that, I said, I told Design for Health, we partner with them. I said, look, I've done this. He said, don't ask me to do any more study. If I should do, I should do something else. I'm done with this. You know, I have three months and six months. And most people have what they call dose dependent. You have X dose and double the dose, triple the and see what it goes, right? But this one, I didn't do this. I already decided that the active dose is 600 milligram. So in the three, six and 12 months, this is, I mean, in a sense, it's a gamble of a sort because we can't do all the studies in the world that is to do, but I decided that they are seriously under stress and the body is under inflammation. So I decided on the 600 milligram in the three, six and 12 months. So I consider this, not a dose-dependent study, but a time-dependent study. So they systematically got better. So I'm now nail on it. People who have fatty liver disease should consider taking 600 milligram, 300 milligram each pill with two meals. You got to take it with a meal to absorb better. Lunch and dinner would be ideal. And then take this and then we consistently see the benefit and some of the benefits I had mentioned. And by the way, if the audience are scientifically curious, you need to know the study, let Cynthia know. I would be happy to pass those three studies to you. We already put press releases out like that and so this is what I'm hope to do. If the audience are listening, I may fail, but you know, better that I tried and failed than never try at all. Now that I have three study and they are controlled really well, and then they are placebo controlled, which means that we have a dummy group as well to show that it didn't do anything. So we're going to seek a law firm that can help us to package this together and then write it. And we will then make a presentation to the FDA and see if the FDA would allow a condition claim. They will probably never allow that. If you take this tocotrienol, it would help you to treat 
NALVL. There's a too strong a word, but maybe allow that for those who have something more blend, for those who have fatty liver condition among exercise and good diet, and they may benefit from having toco, something like that. So, but even like that, we still need the FDA, but as far as the studies are concerned, you are smart listeners and you are smart people who know how to read the literature. If you read the conclusion of the cardiologist who did the study, then it will be explained. We have no impact on the study. The study is the study. And by the way, this is double blind placebo control. You know what that means? That means that neither the patient nor the physician know who is getting the good, the, the real McCoy and the dummy pill. So, and I'm providing the toco trial. How would I know? I'm not even involved in anything. So the study is what the study is. So for me, this is very thrilling to see that we subject ourselves to the same scrutiny of study and it's coming out. So. I don't know. This is probably as good as it's going to get. <laughs> Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. 
It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. No, it's it's very exciting. And, and this is the gold standard of research. This is high quality research. You know, we talk about improving insulin sensitivity, reducing inflammation, improving nofl D, which is a terrible byproduct of metabolic disease and, you know, more efficiently burning fat. Now I'd love to shift our focus because of particular interest to my listeners is bone health. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't realize that we're heading into middle age with maybe we're at greater risk due to genetics. Maybe we're at greater risk because we weren't doing enough bone bearing exercise when we were younger. Let's talk about bone health and the impact of tocotrienols because I I think this is of particular interest along with the um, metabolic disease that we just talked about. Yeah. On the bone health thing, let me quickly uh, disclose what the audience and you and I already know. When we have, as we go older, we're able to retain calcium less in the bone, which is mostly protein, but have calcium maintained there, would be to take vitamin D and calcium. We all know about that. And more recently, we know about vitamin K, particularly manoquinone. You probably read about that. And however, the audience may or may not know the activity to retain bones strength, a bone mineralization in the bone is actually MK4, manoquinone 4, not the popularly proposing MK7. I will get to that, but just make a note as MK4, like that in the bone. Now, in the bone, we have the bone that grow the bone called osteoblast, and then the bone that break down the bone called osteoclast. We need this because I know it's a little bit sci-fi-ish and a zombie-ish. Every two years, our entire bone system is replaced. So you need to have the growing bone and the breakdown bone. You cannot just have growing bone like that. That means we are like the Hulk. And you can't do this because our body had to replenish itself. The skin and other place will be much faster turn- turnover, but the bone is slower. So you need uh, the balance of this. Now, if you were to be a young boy or a girl going to puberty, you can imagine the osteoblast will be super high and the osteoclast will be low. And before puberty, they are of equal. Then they slow the first 10 years, perhaps slowly like that. And then suddenly the osteoblast go high when the hormone is surging and the your class go down. Now, if you try to remember for a woman going to menopause, then the opposite happened because she's closing down on her hormone production. Then the osteoblast come down and osteoclast goes up. Then if on balance, that is out of kilter and then the bone loss will drop. Men also have this, but it's androgenic. So meaning that when they are both reach 80 years old, if the men live long enough to be in their 80s, then their bone loss would be comparable. But during the menopause, let's say 50, 55, it drops quite suddenly for the reason I just explained. So we 
designed the study to take advantage of this. So we did, of course, we did not do the study on uh, puberty girls and boys like that because it just doesn't make sense. And then we would not do a study pre-puberty because there are a lot of questions that the professor would ask, why would you give this to a like that. And then during most of their life, uh, maybe from 18 to 35, 40 years old, it's pretty stable balance. And then until, so we chose people who are 55 to 65 years old. We did not choose women above 65 because we fear that they may be osteoporotic. So we didn't want to be at that stage. It's hard to cull back. So it's on the osteopenic area. And we measure the amount of bone growing to the bone read. So the bone growing osteoblast would be say here, but over the three months that we gave to them, the indicator on the bone growing increase. And then on the bone loss one, let's say it would drop, the bone loss uh, would be this amount. And then when we gave them uh, the toco trienol, the bone loss thing would also drop and the bone growth thing would increase. And that's the ratio uh, doctors want, the bone growth against the bone loss. And we saw that to be increased approximately 100%. The reason we measure like that and not actually measure the DEXA thing is because if you physically measure the DEXA thing, you will need about five, uh, three to five years. And our study cannot be so long. It's going to fail on us because the woman uh, will get disenchanted. They don't, they don't want to do the study. If more, unfortunately, if they pass away or they move out of town. So there are many things you have to think about when it comes to clinical study. So we measure uh, the cytokines, the measurement on what grows and not grow the bone and that's what we, we did. Now the other measurement we did we are very excited about that the scientists and I this is this was done in Texas was that I surmise that women who are going to menopause have high degree of oxidative stress and the reason I came to that conclusion is the estrogen E2 is actually an antioxidant. I heard very few uh, doctors telling me that. I saw the molecule of the feminine estrogen. It actually have a phenol ring and OH group. There's an antioxidant. So when that dropped, I said, wow, her systemic ability to protect her body by making the estrogen, that drop. But most people only think about that as loss of bone, but also increased oxidative stress because of the estrogen being an antioxidant. So I decided that because it's like this, let's measure her oxidative stress marker. So we did that specifically because the estrogen dropped. And we saw that when it took the tocotrienol, that oxidative stress is reduced by no less than 100%. This was also published, I think, in the year 2017 or 18. So we did that. So after that, the same professor campaigned to me, said, Barry, I think that it's very difficult for a long-term study to measure the DEXA thing on women with osteopenia. Then I said, I asked Professor Shen, what do you have in mind? He said, Barry, I think that when men and women are carrying a lot of weight, they have a sarco-osteopenia, which means that they put on weight and they mask their muscle drop and then the bone loss like that. So I think that we should study uh, people who have uh, obese, obesity. Then I said, okay. So the study started two years ago, right in the middle of COVID. So it's been delayed a year, but it's still ongoing. Here we have an, uh, 
I'm actually not wanting to say thrill because it, it just means funny. This is the first time we're going to have a biopsies of the obese patient fatty tissue, uh, just where the graft is in front of the abdomen here. And so, as you know, the inflammatory cytokine is actually on the fat itself. So when we sample it out, now we can decisively look at the cytokine at the fat, not the cytokine subsequent to the fat and in the blood. Not that that is no good, but it's after it's a lot of time, even when we study AST and ALT, which is produced in the liver, correct? But we actually measure them in the blood. But of course, we are not simply allowed to poke into the liver. I mean, easy to say and easy to do in animal, but you can't do it in human like that unless somebody showed that they have hepatitis C or liver cancer, then the doctor would perform something like that. So we don't know the study result because it's blinded again. So probably in a year, we would know uh, that. So that would be, I'm very confident that the toco know, will reduce severe inflammation and stress, whether the stress is based on huge amount of fat or huge amount of bone loss or the liver. But on the bone thing, let me segue into something that I believe will be very useful to your audience. I mentioned MK4 manoquinone 4, and you will read some study, MK7. MK7 is made by bacteria fermentation in the gut. So that if you take a cheese or kimchi or kefir or anything that is done by fermentation, you get this MK4, like uh, MK7. However, and there are many manoquinone, MK7, 9, 11, and 13. Basically, the tail is long. So MK7 comes from a compound called vitamin K. Let's say you have a ring like this. You have a head. So that is, a, is phyloquinone and a tail. So this, and if you, the dark green vegetable, you have this. Nobody asked this question. If you were to be a vegan, you will consume a lot of green leafy vegetable or what I call eating more like a rabbit food, then they would be consuming a huge amount of phyloquinone. Were they to consume a huge amount of phyloquinone and they were all absorbed, they would clot to death <laughs> because vitamin K is known for clotting to seal the tear. But healthy vegan and vegan do not clot to death. So. The reason is because only a fixed amount of phyloquinone when it gets to the gut is absorbed to do exactly what we said. But for the one knot, it actually, at the gut, it crops it up. See? So the tail is flushed out. So now the ring goes in. And when the ring goes in, I know I got a terrible example here. The ring is going to look for another tail and then stitch this on like this. That is MK4. It starts with this uh, phyloquinone and some amount go in for clotting, and then it become like this, MK4, and you know the yellow one that makes MK4, not MK7, the tail, that is GG. That mm -hmm. is a compound called gyanol gyanol, and gyanol gyanol, among many things it does, is to make MK4, and then now I've taken the time to explain this. Why is this important to bone health? MK4 help in a biochemical pathway for the carboxylation to make protein that is cross-lattice in the bone to trap and keep the calcium in place in the bone. 
and that is MK4. To this day, if you Google MK4, it is a at 45 milligram. It's a pharmaceutical drug in Japan for anti osteoporosis. So all this to say, I'll segue now to this here in the background here. See that is a molecule of GG. That molecule of GG in the plant is used to make tocotrienol. Our body doesn't know to do that. And this uh, compound is made in our body since time memorial. We make this like that. Whether we know it or not, we make this. So I, I will uh, tell you this. The body, I know of at least three reasons why our body makes CoQ10. Uh, makes uh, GG. Our body makes GG to make MK4, and I took the time to explain to you, not phyloquinone, but MK4 after a fixed amount going. Our body also used GG to make CoQ10. In the background, you see the other long molecule. Look at the black and white thing. It's two and a half length of the tail is GG. And people know to take CoQ10 because this is good for energy and also good for the muscle. And the last thing is this uh, compound GG that I mentioned to you, it is uh, critical in the body to make, I'll say very carefully and slowly, for skeletal muscle protein synthesis. So therefore, of the 40% of the muscle protein our body makes uh, as we're younger, and of course we lost much of this as we grow older, is dependent on GG for the skeletal muscle protein to be made. And so if we lost this as we go older, that so therefore GG is an anti-aging supplement. We, so therefore, when people say that as we go older, we don't have enough energy, CoQ10, because we don't have enough GG. And we take statin drug. Everybody know it lowers CoQ10. It lower CoQ10 because statin drug is on the same pathway that inhibit GG synthesis. So GG is the reason why CoQ10 drop. So CoQ10 is called ubiquinone, so is ubiquitous. Well, happy to let you know. Probably CoQ10 is ubiquitous because GG is ubiquitous, right? Explain there. And then why do we lose muscle mass? Because we don't make enough GG. Just think of your elderly parent. And why do we have osteopenia and osteoporosis as we grow older? Because we don't have uh, enough uh, GG. Now, I know I elaborated on women, but this one I must let you know. There are two drugs that affects GG. One is statin. And people take statin drugs because they lower cholesterol. Everybody knows that. And the same pathway lower GG. Your doctor does not really care if you take statin drug, if you lower CoQ10, unless it's a holistic doctor. However, that doctor, as well as your holistic doctor, do care if when you take a statin drug, if you have muscle problem like that, they all, everybody care. And the muscle problem is because statin inhibit GG also as it inhibit cholesterol, but it inhibit the ability to make skeletal muscle protein. And that's why they have myopathy. That's it. Very simple. So, but if you don't take statin drug, then you have sarcopenia. The other one, this one, if I were to be a list woman, I'm going to, my ears will be perked up. Women at menopause, when they have osteoporosis, the doctor prescribed bisphosphonate. Bisphosphonate is clearly a drug to help in the maintenance of mineralization in the bone. A good thing. You Google after my talk and you Google this phrase, 
B-R-O-N-J. It simply stands for bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. It's a terrible phrase. If I would explain it, it's just kind of like your jaw kind of like fall apart and dies, you know? So bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis of the jaw. This is not a normal dental problem. The dentist discovered this because I, I asked many dentists, he said, Barry, I have seen this. I have never seen this in a normal person who have bacterial action, blah, 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 like this. So this is clearly a drug associated thing. So the dentists were the first to found this thing out. And then they found out systematically it would be 50 something, 60 something women and they are taking anti osteoporosis drug. And the, the answer is very simple. When they take this drug uh, to strengthen the bone, in the bone elsewhere, but somehow in the jaw, it does exact opposite. So in the jaw, it helps to, to destroy the gum, which is a kind of a soft tissue bone. And then the jaw bone, where the extraction is, particularly when the woman have an extraction, and then the wound would not heal and the bone would not seal. And then they found out this. And then now they found out that bisphosphonate uniquely and surgically inhibit the osteoblast of the gum and of the jawbones GG, such that it cannot make enough of the gum and the bone. So there you have it. So right now, we are trying to find a dental uh, department that if they take extraction of people to put in a small drop of GG. So I have to wait to see this. So until then, if I were to be a, a person of older age and particularly of a woman, and if a person is taking a bisphosphonate drug, then minimally they should consider supplementing GG. So. No, it's I'm complete. My mind is completely blown. One of the things that I read about last night is as it pertains to GG, that some Japanese scientists determined that it actually increases testosterone and progesterone, which I found fascinating. So these compounds that, you know, we may not have been familiarized with prior to this discussion can have a significant impact on our health, our longevity, our metabolic health, our bone health. I could probably talk to you for hours because we that you have so much amazing research. I would love for you to share with listeners how to connect with you, how to get your book, how to learn more about you and your research. And we will be putting links to all these research articles that you have discussed so that people can take this information, take it to their providers you know, perhaps start integrating some of these concepts and supplements into their lifestyle. What's the easiest way to connect with you? I guess easiest way would be if you were to type my name and my name is spelled a little bit affectatious, you know, but I have this name for a long time. Or you can go to barrytan.com slash forward slash dot book, and then you can download the book. And that would be a best way to do it. If not, you can go to a company. We don't sell finished product. The company is American River Nutrition. We are based here in Massachusetts. And they'll say a place buying toco trienol. And then we'll list all the companies selling it. So when you come to our website, because we don't sell uh, products to consumer, but you can download our white paper on GG 
on TOCO trienal. Oh, we also make a CoQ10 because uh, people who take statin drug drop. So we have a particular CoQ10 ubiquinol and GG together because I don't know now yet if people take a powerful drug like statin, if they just take GG is enough uh, to fix mixing all the CoQ10. So I thought to just combine the two and the absorption is much better. So we're happy with that. So you can download the three studies and if you have question, you can send us an email and then we can answer. We're happy. By the way, in the book here, it has lots of references and you can download the paper to read more. So, well, thank you so much for having me. I hope that the audience is uh, learned something from this and seek applications uh, to see. And also, we are now conducting two studies out. There will be more on GG, at least from the conducting of the study, you know what direction we're going to. We are giving in Florida, we're doing a study on uh, people taking GG to see if the testosterone and progesterone would increase per what you just mentioned earlier like that. We should know that by the end of this year. The other one is a more complex study. It won't be done until next year would be uh, people who have hypercholesterolemia under a cardiologist care who are currently taking statin, who have confirmed myopathy and is running on a medical treadmill to see if the myopathy uh, would reduce when they take uh, a GG compared to the one who's taking statin and not taking GG. So if that were to work, that would be great. And the last one, last two, we hope, we don't know when we're going to do that would be for a young person, the 20 something college student not taking statin or anything, if they will increase muscle mass force. So that would be more athletic type thing. And then hopefully on the other section of life on the elderly population to see if this would mitigate sarcopenia per se, nothing to do with drug. If I can do that, it's probably time for me to retire, but that will be the last two things I would like to do. And then I'll put my print uh, on this and then let other people, I'm sure there will be many other people that would follow this. This is exceedingly exciting. I'm not talking about a supplement that you just give to people. This is something our body produces. So we're just thinking of, hey, if our body produces, let's listen to what our body is supposed to do with this compound in our body. So I'm just simply answering very simple questions, you know. Well, I'm so grateful for your research and the opportunity to connect with you. Your enthusiasm is infectious. I love that you included analogies to make it much more accessible to listeners. Thank you so much for your time today. I'll definitely have to have you back and hear more about your research going forward. Thank you so much. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 